Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar, How to Make the InsureTech Revolution Actually Happen. Like every financial services industry, insurance has attracted innovators armed with new technologies such as blockchain and AI. Their promise is an industry free of the negative stereotype of those endless variants of those old jokes about how accidents happen unless you have an accident insurance policy, what the big print uh, gives, the small print takes away, and the only reliable thing about an insurance company is they never fail to collect the premium. And the innovators are right to assume that the insurance industry has a reputational problem. It also has fraud management problems, and like every financial services industry, a range of cost problems too, which technology and the data it produces and consumes can in principle do a lot to fix. So what is happening in the world of insurtech? Which technologies are being adopted by which incumbents? And is the insurance industry making progress in making its customers as well as its shareholders happy? To discuss these questions with us, I'm joined by Meredith Barnes-Cook, who is Vice President Industry Groups at Usher, providers of the world's first AI-powered customer experience automation platform that is enabling carriers to transform the customer experience making it easier for customers, brokers, and others to connect to insurers through the digital channel of their choice for an improved customer satisfaction score, speed to value, and operating costs. Andrew Bennett is Global Insurance Director and CEO UK at Greater Than, a company whose stated mission is to make the roads safer and more sustainable by using data to make motor insurance better, fairer, and less energy intensive. Ed Gaze is an innovation expert who is now CEO and co-founder of Innovative Risk Labs, IRL, which is building a network of insurtech startups and which Ed joined from Lloyd's Lab, the innovation arm of Lloyd's of London, where his role was to identify promising insurtechs, facilitate partnerships with them and foster a culture of innovation. Craig John is Global Innovation Director, Davies Group, the professional services and technology firm that specializes in insurance and other regulated markets. Craig's role is to identify and commercialize disruptive and innovative technologies in partnership with clients. As always, in addition to our panelists, we also have you, our audience, and all five of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the Zoom screen. Uh, rest assured, I won't be saving those up uh, to the end, but we will endeavour to answer them as we go along so you can be part of this conversation right from the get-go. Now, I'd like to begin by <clears throat> setting the scene. Insurance, like any industry, faces unlimited possibilities, but limited uh, resources of time and money. To be in business is to choose. So what should it prioritise? And I'd like to identify what each of our panellists sees as the priorities, and then before looking at those priorities in a bit more detail, ask what uh, or which of those priorities fintechs are aiming at, uh, and indeed which technologies, is it blockchain, is it AI, is it the cloud, which they see as the most promising in terms of their impact on the industry. So uh, to, to summarize, what are the priorities? Um, is it, uh, uh, I mean, every, every, every insurance company, like every company, is looking to increase its sales, increase its profits, break into new markets, and so on. Um, and maybe I could throw this at you first, uh, Meredith. Um, I'm sure you'd say making more money, making more sales is part of the 
part of the the agenda which insurance companies have but, but what about the other things risk management if you do that better you can increase your insurance capacity what about cutting operational costs that's one way to increase your profit margins uh, and above all that point i raised at the beginning uh, about the reputational issue how do you as an insurance company get closer to your customers build better relationships with them improve their experience uh, meredith what do you see as the priorities yeah, I mean, obviously, everybody's trying to expand and write more business, but to your point, it needs to be profitable business. So it is how do you keep getting better than your competitors, um, you know, through both, you know, true human expertise and technology to augment to as quickly as possible discern the risk that you don't want versus the risk that you want, but you want to price it a little differently. Um, so that's definitely a piece of the puzzle, but we're but we're really seeing, especially um, in the U.S., but I think it's pretty global and really specifically hitting hard on the personal auto side is the 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 opex side of things. Um, the auto industry has been challenged for at least a decade now um, because cars just aren't cars anymore; they're computers on wheels. Um, there's no such thing as replacing a fender or a bumper. You know, you have to bring in the, the electrical engineer to hook up all the, all the things. So you have that challenge that auto has been striving. How do you still be profitable and be competitive, um, in a world where things are costing more now let's superimpose what's happened in the past two and a half years where we have a supply chain problem, which those, those more expensive parts are harder to find. And that veers over into the people challenge that's hitting every industry. Um, the duration of repairs is now taking longer because repair shops too are um, having struggling and getting employees, which is definitely in the insurance industry, the personnel, the people side of things is becoming an increasing problem. McKinsey just recently released a survey that showed that of the people who leave an insurance company job, 65% leave the industry altogether. At the same time, almost half a million experienced insurance industry veterans are getting ready to retirement. So you have this dilemma of the great resignation and the great retirement coming together. Um, and truly technology in all of this has a role to play of how do you precisely improve it for risk management? How do you improve your customer experience by stop thinking about it as an insurance engagement and thinking about it as a service service moment, like a, like a retail journey? And then how do you understand that your employees, your, employ, your customers' expectations are the same expectations your employees have? And that's why they're leaving. Uh, they're leaving because they're still being asked to do things in a manual block and tackling way. Right. So, um, Andrew, perhaps I could come to you next, partly because Meredith raised the question of, of the motor industry, but you made a very interesting point there about technology being capable of, of replacing people, but actually also lack of technology is driving people out of the industry because they don't want to work with legacy systems. Does that match your experience? Yeah, I think very much so, to be honest. Um, I think most insurance companies are sitting on some, some very heavy legacy systems, which they, they find difficult to, I guess, to integrate new technology into, whether that be a digital journey or be sort of risk management, et cetera. And I think, um, you know, the, the existing system really of, of using proxy factors to, to, to basically assign risk is, is, is very difficult. Um, I think um, patent AI um, and certainly the cloud are probably two of the most innovative and, and, and probably the most worthy challenges, I think, to, to, to sort of the existing status quo at the moment. 
And, you know, if you take a proxy risk, for example, what you're saying is that just because somebody lives where they live, they drive a particular car, they have a particular occupation of a certain age, they're going to drive in a certain way. And we all know that that's simply not true. So the minute you can use technology to stop doing those things, um, I guess the more satisfied customers are going to become because the premium they get charged probably more reflects the risk um, that they actually present. I think the, the counterbalance to that is, of course, that you know, there's an argument where you end up with this toxic bucket of people that become uninsurable because they're, if you like, charged for how they drive. But mm. the opportunity sits with all of us really within that world to actually change the way we drive. Because if you're being judged on static factors like where you live, where you work, what you drive, clearly you can't change those things. So I think we're giving everybody the opportunity, if you like. And I think those that take that opportunity will undoubtedly improve their premiums but they also improve um, road safety um, as well. So I think, you know, insurers want to want to invest in this. They want to embrace it. I think it's up to us in the tech community to, to enable them to be able to do it by, as I say, sort of moving um, more towards an evolution rather than a revolution, which they can, yeah, they can take part in an evolution. They can't really take part in the revolution. So. so if I was to try and squeeze you, Andrew, into my priority list here, you would say that... Uh, adopting and adapting to these technologies could actually lead to improvements in risk management and indeed in in customer engagement will it help the cost ratio as well absolutely um because if, if you're using digital mechanisms to, to deal with your customers um because there's an assumption i think certainly you know within the old school industry that, that customers want to talk to people all of the time no they don't actually what they want is a sensible resolution from the technology that they're using so if that technology actually works and takes them to the end goal that they're actually looking for, um, then they don't necessarily want to interface face to face. So I think first you can save people time, um, which is which is a big sort of operational cost. But I think with regard to claims as well, let's face it, if we can identify poor risks, we can improve those poor risks, um, then ultimately there will be less accidents um, and, and therefore there will be less need for auto repairs ultimately. Um, and you think about all of the, the AI that's now in vehicles as well, um, you know, ADAS technologies, etc. Um, I, th I think we're moving more towards uh, almost catastrophe type insurance, particularly as you know, autonomous vehicles take more of a hold. So, so why shouldn't insurance truly reflect the risk that, that a vehicle or a person actually presents? And yeah, of course, operational costs are going to drop. And I think it's up to insurers really what they do with that. You know, the more entrepreneurial will, will, will probably reduce the cost of that insurance so they can sell more of it. The less entrepreneurial will sweep it to the bottom line and, and their options, I guess, for people to take. But I think, you know, premiums will ultimately move down as this technology is adopted. And it, it will be a good thing for the world because you have an opportunity now not to be put into a, a basket of a £2,000 premium just because you're a young driver or a you know, £300 premium because you're 60 years old. You could equally be as good or as bad as those people, you know. Craig. You've, yeah. heard, you've heard what Meredith and um, Andrew said. They've described for us a kind of virtuous circle in which you adopt technology, your cost ratio improves, your risk management improves, your customers get happier. Now, as you look at the insure techs trying to, to enter the industry, uh, I don't know whether you've had the same experience as me. There seem to be an awful lot of them, uh, all engaged in very different different things some seem to be working very well one thinks of lemonade for example but others don't seem to be making much impact at all so if i said to you um where do you think the the insure techs that that you think are going to uh, well maybe which insure techs are making the biggest impact 
on the insurance industry from from where you sit and 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 is that impact systemic or is it very specific to particular pockets of the industry yeah i think um i completely agree with the kind of barriers around the, the legacy systems um conflicting priorities if you like and sometimes organizations are, are you know certainly in the insurance um, industry that they're highly acquisitive you know they're constantly ever growing as a complex beast if you like uh, inheriting multiple different systems but i certainly agree that you know sometimes um you know when insurance insure techs try to kind of move into if you like an operating model as complex as that that um it does become uh, quite quite difficult if you like for executives to look at how can that be positioned and what impact can it make so I think, um, you know, also on that kind of customer engagement side of things um, is, is quite quite an important factor, really, because, um, you know, we are people at the end of the day, and some of these complex operating models are very, very people, human-based. And um, it's kind of how we can start taking modern technology, if you like, which is over here, and kind of operating modern a legacy estate, which is here, and kind of really work on that gap, which I've I label as adoptions so that human tech interface so so culturally i think culture plays a bit is a big big part into um kind of which ones are making the most impact is really starting to understand that customer journey starting to understand the bespoke nature of the organizations that they're trying to adapt to or evolve in um and starting to use data to get closer to that customer engagement i think so you know we have seen some major successes um um and, and use cases done very well where they've really started on that customer cultural aspect and work the technology back from there, if you like. So shape technology to that. So, um, but you know, when we're when we're also landing the likes of AI or, or RPA, if you like, to look at those, you know, solving those interoperability challenges between legacy systems, or um, you know, being that kind of removing that human glue element, if you like, between between uh, business process and operations. Um, you know, typically organisations who are going through that complex change seem to really kind of narrow the scope into. Um, like how can we deploy RPA in the back office to solve some sort of, uh, you know, processes and challenges. So I think um, overall, um, th th those barriers still exist and it can be quite challenging to adopt the modern technology. So hence why it's been kind of done successfully, I feel, so far in, in pockets, if you like. There are obviously incredibly um, some, some good use cases out there, but, you know, insurtechs at the moment are really hanging on to those big use cases um, and trying to uh, massage those, if you like, into, into organisations. Um, Ed, uh, you've been looking at InsureTechs for quite a while. You, you've just heard Craig talk about the difficulties of getting around legacy systems and, and very complex uh, operational back office processes when you're looking to, to adopt technologies. And when I, when I was thinking about this, I thought these, these fintechs are actually operating on a very broad front. They're trying to attack how insurance is distributed. They're trying to attack how insurance risks are assessed. Uh, the point Andrew made about you end up with this sort of poisonous bag of uninsurable risks uh, because you are using genomics and you're using behavioral science and you're using um, telemetrics and uh, dash cams and, uh, and so on. Um, but I also see uh, quite a lot of focus, particularly by traditional tech companies, on, on cutting costs inside the, the insurance industry by, by really quite old fashioned um, methods and we've talked a lot all, all three of your fellow panelists have talked a lot about the importance of the customer side you just said Craig say you know that's the place to start and then you might have some success in overcoming legacy systems and, and processes and I can see Meredith itching to address this point and we'll come to her in a second but Ed what what where do you see insurtechs actually making a difference at the moment uh, you know which fronts should they be pressing on um, to have a scalable impact yeah well I think um 
we call them insurtechs, but a lot of insurtechs, like the tech isn't really that important or that like game changing, to be honest. Um, so if you think a lot of innovation that happens in insurance products is through MGAs uh, or ARs in the UK. And, um, and really, I mean, the, the tech is not the greatest innovation. It's normally the distribution they've got and the policy innovation. So it's about coming up with a policy people actually want and a policy that people understand and you know a policy there where they're when they're in a difficult time they know that they're going to get their insurance is going to back them up and if we can inspire people with policies that actually deal with the challenges they're facing in life and that pay up quickly efficiently transparently then you change you start to change the perception of insurance and i think a lot of insure tech is kind of not really i mean there is a bit of tech there and there's data for sure but um, ultimately, it's kind of like not really about the technology. It's more about the mindset and the policy. And, um, and ultimately, it all goes into a binder, which then is, <laughs> it gets back into the archaic system of like the, the insurer doesn't know what it's written for a month and, you know, is hidden in a load of Excel spreadsheets. But, you know, I mean, yeah, that needs to be solved. And ultimately, we can reduce the cost and more of the premium that the customer is paying is going to go back to claims, which would be fantastic to get to. Um, but, uh, but, you know, ultimately, like through the MGA model, we can still innovate a lot and get customers what they really want. Now, Meredith, I, I know you, you'd like to say something here. And I, I could I sort of prompt you by, there's a phrase Ed, Ed used there, you know, provided we come up with the, the policy that people want. Uh, and the old joke is, of course, nobody wants an insurance policy. They kind of have to take it because the regulation or the law says they have to, or they have some risk, uh, as Ed was uh, more, I present him more fairly was describing that you know, people do have risks they want they want to insure and they want to be confident that the insurance policy is going to pay out uh, when something when something goes wrong. But I'm getting clarity here. This is all about starting at the customer end and then the technology, the processes, the legacy systems. You deal with them from that perspective. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, I think the insurance industry would do well to keep think stop thinking that a customer or a prospect pivots their experience expectation because they're now having insurance interaction. Um, perhaps 10, 15 years ago, but now they don't. They come to the table, especially in this as we're pushing more to digital experience or offering digital as a choice. Um, it can't be like, I need to now filter and lower my expectations of the experience because this is an insurance journey. Keeping in mind that, as you said, an insurance purchase to some degree is a very reluctant buy. Um, even for the insurance that isn't mandated, um, you know, it's like life insurance. It's a wise financial idea, absolutely. But no one is excited about spending all that money. Uh, and insurance has a real problem in terms of customer exact acquisition costs. So if you're not focusing on how you retain your customer, the insurance industry has like a nine times the cost to retain CAC compared with overall industry average of five. So they already have an OPEX problem there. The other piece of it, um, you know, and you know, Andrew was talking about the the risk mitigation and preventing, you know, and, and preventing losses and better understanding drivers. The insurance industry is doing a great job, I do believe, in more and more fronts with technology, from telematics to geodata and all of that, to preventing losses or reducing their severity, which is fantastic. So the problem that insurance companies have is you're doing a great job there. Wonderful. How are you shifting to remind your, your customer why you're the best? I call them the did you know dot, dot, dot moments. 
Um, they do surveys. They've done surveys the past six months, almost every line of business, be it from group benefits to homeowners to auto. People continually say, I don't really fully understand what I just bought. Get it? Insurance is a contract. Who understands contracts? And I would really like to hear from my insurance company throughout the year of what did I just purchase and how do I use it? And I think there is, the, you know, when we talk about like that cross-sell, upsell journey, for example, people get so reluctant about that. And, you know, it's like you have to engage it as a, not as a, hey, we want to sell you something, as opposed to we want to be sure you understand. You know, for example, if you have a really profitable auto customer and you don't have their homeowners or renters business, it's an opportunity to say, we have discount packages if you do it. Do you own or rent? And in this day, in this current world, more people are moving from owning to renting. And a lot of renters don't understand necessarily, that's great. You don't have to ensure structure, but if that place you live in gets flooded or goes up in smoke, if you don't have a renter's policy, you're in deep trouble. Your stuff is gone. If you don't have a personal replacement cost endorsement policy, even if you have insurance, if you take really good care of your stuff, the fully depreciated value may have come and gone and you're still going to get nothing. And so it's that opportunity to reach and say, did you know, dot, 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 to educate the customer, not only on what they have, but what else they could have. And they walk away feeling informed whether or not they purchase their perception of the carrier overall elevates. It, and it's those little moments, what, these little micro engagements, little moments that can unconscious remind that customer why I'm with company X. So when renewal comes around and that auto renewal comes around, it doesn't feel like a transaction, an annual transaction. It feels like um, celebrating an anniversary. It feels like reinforcing a relationship. I think it's about relevance though as well, Meredith. So, so you know, if you take, you know, talking about auto propositions and, and you, know, you think back to the pandemic, um, so, so we look at what we're looking at here, I suspect that neither of us actually traveled um, in a car today I suspect Ed probably came from wherever he came on the train to his office. And I suspect the rest of us have probably got cars sitting on the drive at the moment. So, you know, how, how relevant are the old propositions to today's market? You know, can we use technology to make those propositions relevant? You know, for example, if my car is sitting out there for three days because I'm working from home, should I not be able to have, for example, a, you know, a car free day? And should my insurance company not compensate me for the fact that I'm not at risk on those three days because the car sits on the drive? Um, if I'm driving much fewer miles than I used to drive and I'm driving on safer roads, um, should I not be compensated for that? And I think, you know, once again, it comes all back to this, this 12 month cycle. You know, why should I have to wait 12 months to you know, change my insurance premium? Why, in theory, shouldn't it change every month? Now, you can parameterize that to make it affordable for the individual. But, you know, you can do lots of things to encourage people to reduce their risk and ultimately be safer, but allow them to save money. And then I think. The other argument, of course, comes from from the eco lobby. And I think, you know, there's there's a lot to be said for, if you like, um, insurance companies really looking at, you know, the ecology actually of insurance and car use. Um, and not only are you necessarily therefore giving people money back um, if they're not using their vehicle, you also promote them for, for, for using less CO2. And I think digital insurance using AI, machine learning, pattern AI, which we use, um, I think allows um insurance companies to construct those sorts of propositions very very quickly within sort of existing legacy parameters and if you like modernize what they do and here in the uk i mean there are some fantastic examples that are already happening 
um, of that. You know, Vitality does these things already. You know, it uses these sorts of technologies to be able to do it. We work with several customers across the states and in Southeast Asia that are doing exactly this. And yeah, it's just about waking up the industry really and saying, look, you know, we don't have to do it this way. Your system can cope. And um, we can make this fairer and better for customers. And do you feel, do you feel Andrew, that it's uh, it's got to the point that we can hyper personalize, we can get that cause because it is all about that cultural alignment to what's right for that person at the right time. And I think that's what's going to reduce the friction, in my opinion, of um, is this a transaction? Is this something I need or want? So, you know, if if eco as an example is important to that person, um, then let's let's underwrite the policies and provide the services based on that um let's how can we be flexible and dynamic and personalize that experience how, do you feel like it's there yet what's the what's the journey to get to that point i think it's coming and i think you know if i'm being really really honest um what caused that change i think it's probably 60 70 pandemic and sort of 30 percent, if you like you know what, what's going on in the industry and i think as, as as digital innovators we've got to jump on the back of those changes in lifestyle and make our products very relevant to our customers moving forward. Um, you know, and, and that could easily fit into households. It doesn't auto insurance, but auto is kind of where we are at the moment. I think that's the first step. And then you look at the way you know, people use cars. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, you've actually got a car sitting on your drive and there's three other people out there that might want to use that car on the day you're not using it. And is there a way that you can actually monitor how they use that vehicle, make sure they pay for the risk that they present and the miles that they drive in that vehicle? Well, yes, of course there is, because you know, if, if you're using AI GPS data, all of those things are absolutely 100% possible now today. Um, so I think it's just about the market almost waking up a little bit, grasping the opportunity and giving those customers a chance to interact with us. Because you know, we're talking about what well, we only ever hear from these customers once a year when the renewal comes through. Well, that's because we've got nothing to say. But if we turn it around and we're interacting with customers, giving them all these wonderful opportunities to decrease premium, become safer, you know, become more eco-friendly, then they're going to engage with these propositions far more than they do today. Yeah, I like... Sorry, Meredith, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, I like what you're saying, Andrew, because, I mean, you know, telematics, for example, has really been a lot around for a long, long time. And so to the concept, I talk with my son a lot. He gets to hear all about my insurance perspective. And we take walks in the evening. Um, he owns a Tesla. So we get a lot into this, you know, data privacy. And I think the challenge has been the insurance industry hasn't figured again, again, how to have a conversation with a customer, you know, at that stop talking as an insurance company, engage on the what's in it for me factor. Um, you know, like to, to, the, to the point you were a question you were asking, Craig, about personalization, find what's important to me and then give me a reason to give up that privacy. Give me a reason to let you into the black box of my car that resonates to me, um, you know, that to, to me at, at a personal level and in, you know, non-font size four, um, make me really trust that you are not going to go in sell my data elsewhere. Um, I, in the United States, um, I was stunned to learn a few years ago that several of our state-based departments of motor vehicles sell their, the data to all these other vendors. And I'm like, I so do not remember saying that was okay. Um, and somewhere in a box that I clicked to renew my license or my registration, there must've been super uber fine print and so it's like, well, trust level, you know, it's just crashed to the floor. Um, 
you know, and now I, you know, I'm, I'm backing up. So I think the insurance industry has a real opportunity to really simplify and streamline how they engage, take the insurance geek speak out of it, um, you know, to get people to do what we, from a social policy, want people do, which is drive more safely. Yeah, we, we've just got to make it more relevant for people. You know, if, if you think about, you, you mentioned the word black box there, and yeah, quite frankly, within, within personal lines insurance, you know, in fleet, obviously, you use black boxes for very different purposes other than just purely risk scoring. But I think, you know, if, in a personal lines perspective, you don't need a black box anymore. You can use a mobile phone with GPS data and you can assess risk. Um, and, and, and that app on a phone links to the Bluetooth in a vehicle can cost you know, a pound, a euro, a dollar a month. You know, it's, it's just not expensive within a proposition. So all of a sudden, if you like those 50 to 100 pound bills that you were paying for black boxes and connectivity, it's all gone. Um, so, so you're looking at, you know, a, a 12 to 18 pound trade-off basically every year just to get that, that risk assessment. And the one thing you're doing then, of course, is using something that every customer pretty much has, which is a smartphone, um, to, to then interact with them. So you're then if you like part of whatever else they're doing, you're not just sort of sitting out there on your own as a sort of a, you know, archaic insurance company, if you like. Ed, what I'm, what I'm hearing here, and I'm glad this has been brought up by both Andrew and Meredith and by Craig, is this question of data. Uh, and Meredith re referred to that uh, abuse, if you like, of data in the United States. We've had similar episodes here in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, so the, the industry has a problem with data, yet at the same time, it, it is a, an industry which, which has always relied upon data uh, to, to price risks and so on. And here it is presented with, with a solution to the, to the problem we've identified here, which is, you know, how do you get close to the customer? How do you engage them better? How do you make yourself appear as the provider they want to stay with? What is this, this customer engagement? Data must be the, the key to that. As you look across the, the landscape of companies, you work with the insurtechs you're seeing, how well understood is that and how much progress is being made? I mean, so many insurtechs like exist because of the data that they have and they bring to the table, particularly kind of like affinity plays where somebody understands the customer better than anyone else. They have nothing to do with insurance, but because they understand the customer so well, they've got the distribution, they can add insurance on. Um, but then you need the thing I said earlier about the actual policy innovation as well to make it work. Um, Something that uh, Meredith said earlier, I just wanted to pull up, um, you said about the insurance geek speak. And when it comes to this kind of stuff, that like not only for the customer, but for innovation and insurtechs, it's like it's a systemic issue in insurance and it's preventing innovation to an extent. So I joined insurance four years ago, didn't know what an MGA was. And, um, and I found like so many people try to come and innovate in insurance and they get stymied by the language that people use. And so it's that is a problem for the customers understanding what they're getting, understanding the policies. And it's also an issue for people who are trying to disrupt the or improve the insurance industry. So um, sorry, just a tangent to go back to what Meredith said back then, kind of like geek speak, insurance geek mm -hmm. speak is a big thing, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in terms of data, it's massive. I think one thing we could do a lot better um, with data is also like kind of have better sharing of data um, with the, the right controls, but like sharing of data when it comes to claims and fraud and things between like that. companies, you mean B between insurance companies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we've obviously got to think about how we can do that in a kind of GDPR world. But, um, you know, if you if, if, if we want to improve the service we're getting, uh, customers are getting one thing that can do that is if we 
you know, if we know the customer better and trust them better, and you know, if there's some like you, you, you talk about blockchain at the very start, sort of like technology, maybe that could be a use of blockchain where you can query people without knowing anything other than answering your question, uh, not knowing what any other details about someone, but saying, you know, helping you identify instances of fraud, um, you know, and, and using that as a way of, um, I say getting to know the customer better. You don't necessarily have to know ins and outs, but it can it could just help you be be a better insurance provider to honest, proper customers. And and if you can get rid of fraud, which is huge. I mean, there's a lot. I, I'm not really an expert in motor insurance, but there's been a lot of talk, talk of motor insurance. But fraud in motor insurance is enormous. And if we can kind of like use data to help tackle that, then immediately there's a lot of money spare to spend on on improving other things. Yeah, I think it's that trust element again. If if people understand the reason why they're kind of, you know, providing that data in a bit more of a uh, you know, across the network way, so securely, you know, secure models, if you like, that we can share, you know, drop the boundaries of each organisation. You know, we're going to drive up that personalisation. We're going to give them a better experience. We're going to increase the trust, and they're less likely to kind of want to kind of be fraudulent. Uh, I, I completely agree as well that the, of the jargon used in this industry is is complicated. Um, I've never read through one. Everyone's going to press the button, it's gone, gone with it. Um, but it is, and I think that is just kind of what people do these days. So uh, I like the point of, you know, how can we how can we gamify that engagement to allow people to kind of scenario test actually what they have bought? Um, and, you know, so if this happened to me, what, what, what uh, you know, what would I get and what the experience would be? Um, and I think that you get a lot more engagement in that sense and people could understand that they've bought in line with, uh, what their comfort uh, risks are and what their risk levels are in that sense. So it comes down to trust and alignment and culture for me and uh, and improving that engagement through through personalization. Craig, what do you, you, you brought up the question here of getting, uh, and Meredith brought it up as well, uh, how you get customer consent to share their data, which is a sort of GDPR world. In other industries, which we which we talk to at Future of Finance, they're very interested in, in in a kind of federated approach in which they can actually access the data, but never know who that data belonged to. So that, that's one approach which Ed was, I think, hinting at in, in his remarks. But maybe there's a, a, a different approach here, which is that you arrive at a world where the consumers own their data and uh, you work with those consumers uh, to prove to them that actually if they share aspects of their data with you, they get a better price and a better product. Um, how are you seeing the industry thinking that way? Yet? Yeah, trying yeah. to turn it on its head. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 huge investment. You know, you know, investors are getting younger, um, they're getting bolder, if you like, they're all looking for the next big thing. Uh, they're getting richer in that sense. And organizations are looking to to make sure that they don't lose out, if you like. So the likes of the metaverse kind of uh, the likes of Web3 technology now, um, how we how people can start being in more control and more connected, if you like. And then, you know, there's been a lot of conversations at a webinar yesterday on the human tech interface. And again, trying to close that gap, uh, becoming independent, if you like, of human and machine. It's quite interesting how, um, how you know, products and services and legacy industries, if you like, need to start thinking about um, how they can, um, shape the service, if you like, to the person through a single interface rather than, um, you know, multiple different apps on your phone, if you like, for lots of different products. Um, so I think it's going to be it's going to be super interesting, really, how how that kind of digital fabric will all kind of interconnect and weave around the person and shape around the person uh, versus the other way around. So, um, 
Uh, you know, I know they're talking kind of uh, out there, blue sky, if you like, but there's a huge investment at the moment. Organizations are certainly thinking about how can they exist in a virtual world? How do their business um, models need to adapt to a mixed reality um, world? How how are we going to be relevant, if you like, in the next five to 10 years? And uh, the likes of data, AI, Web3, Metaverse, those kind of things are uh, super hot topics in, in, in my experience. Yeah, it, that's interesting, Craig, because, you know, kind of the flash forward back, I guess, in terms of where we are in the insurance industry, we're having conversations. Imagine if your customer could have the same experience regardless of what line of business they're interacting with you about. Imagine if it was one door in, regardless of them changing a policy, paying a bill or reporting a claim. That, that's future state today, everybody. Imagine that yeah. in a retail context, I'd be calling my credit card company and putting the card on hold if I dealt with a retailer where I felt felt that that fraction all that that fraction stuff and everything kind of breaking apart because I would worry that there's fraud in play, um, and it, and I and I would be very frustrated um, of not feeling one continuous journey. So it's you know it's separating the the front end what your customers see from the back end of what is. Because the the multi multi systems multi ecosystems sub ecosystems I always say like the more of the spaghetti wear probably the more successful the carrier has been because they've grown through a lot of really savvy mm -hmm. acquisitions mm -hmm. and expanded their distribution channels and and lines of business and that's phenomenal except you've got to, your customer can't see and feel it um, I literally had customer experiences getting turned upside down as a byproduct of one of our customers acquired one of our other ones. And then all of a sudden flipped them from one back end to another. And they're like, what happened? <laughs> um, and I knew exactly what happened, but I'm like, you know, how do you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I think, I think it, it eventually gets to a state though, that the, you know, we're, we're constantly chasing that social expectation and that's ever evolving. Someone mentioned evolution, which I think is bang on that, uh, um, you know, it's constantly evolving. And I think that's the, that's that for me, you know, COVID is, is a one, one major reason for why to to transform a business or digital transformation but i think the number one has always been just the changes in behavior in society and i think um, as technology progresses in the likes of amazon and and google and things like that that will just become the new expectation of the insurance industry as an example so it's super super tough um to try and you know provide the amazon world whilst you have this digital noose around your neck of a legacy estate and acquisitions and fragment if you like so that's that's absolutely the uh the, the challenge and the focus i agree andrew is there a, an opportunity here for the for a data hungry industry like insurance to pioneer data ownership by by customers in other words put a proposition to customers saying if you agree to, to, to share, you know, I, I don't know what this means in practice and perhaps you have a better idea than I do, but let's imagine consumers start to own their data in some kind of digital wallet and the insurance company comes along and says, I'd like to see A, B and C out of your digital wallet. And as a result of that, I will be able to price a motor insurance policy for you or a life policy for you. So all sorts of data could go into those calculations. Do you think that, that opportunity exists for the industry and if it does how well placed do you think the industry is actually to seize it and exploit it i think to an extent it, it already happens in, in certain savvy um fleet operators so, so fleet um tsp telematic service providers um are starting to do this in so much as 
They've obviously got data, one second data, which they're probably using to, to manage risk with regard to a fleet and managing logistics. But they're also talking about things like tire wear, servicing, all of those other aspects, if you like, that relate to, you know, driving a car and you know, driving, you know, auto insurance. And I think if that starts to permeate through into personal lines insurance, then I think we get real and customer engagement. And of course, what we're doing is using their data for other purposes, I guess, than just managing risk. But we are actually providing a service. We, we, we're bulking up discounts, if you like, that, that they could basically earn as, as part of a rewards package. I think the other thing as well is if you think about the communication strategy for this sorts of thing as well, and particularly with data, um, we don't need to just put another app on the phone every time something different comes along. What we can actually use are things like SDKs to, to, to basically just link propositions into one app. Um, so everything's there. So it's just a tile within the app, so the insurance tile, the, the tire tile, whatever the affinity is. And, and, and it basically all works nice and, and seamlessly. So I think data and, and, and using it more, more sensibly, providing we're using it um, with the customer's permission, I think you know, there's infinite possibilities around those um, types of integrated propositions. There's just so much we can do with, you know, with AI to, to, to make customers' lives much easier. You know, if you pull into a car park, for example, um, we know you're in that car park. So so why aren't we actually paying the car parking for you? You know, tolling, for example, you know, you go over the Dartford Bridge or, or, or you know, you go through a toll in the States or whatever. Why aren't insurance companies actually paying that for the customer as well and negotiating a block discount with somebody to actually to get a you know a cheaper thing it, it's all about using these connected technologies linked to insurance and digital insurance more importantly to do things differently for customers and you know the one person or the company that comes up with a proposition that starts to do all of those things albeit as part of evolution not revolution will be the one that ultimately wins i think and you know there's a lot of older traditional companies out there who you know hopefully will, but may not make the journey. Ed, we, we've talked about data mainly up to this point as improving the customer experience. We had some very um, off-the-wall ideas there from, from Andrew as to, as to how insurance companies could start to, to work with their customers to improve uh, the prices they pay across a whole range of, of activities because they know what they're, what they're up to. But what about the impact on the company, the insurance company itself internally? Uh, Meredith said at the outset, lots of people are leaving the industry because they don't want to work with old-fashioned tech. And what immediately popped into my mind there was the customer filling in a form, uh, you know, faxing it across to the insurance company to, to look at, and then somebody re-keying it into a database. And, you know, I can see why that's not a great industry to, to work in. Do you, do you see signs, um, Ed, that, that the industry is, is looking to, to use, to capture data, uh, for its own operational cost purposes, as opposed to improving the customer experience. Yeah, so I, I'll talk from the perspective of the Lloyd's market, and um, <laughs> and there's a lot of inefficiency and a lot of manual keying of data and a lot of repetition in it, and um, and yeah, that frustrates people. So, um, but it also causes some innovation. So, for example, there was a an, an underwriter, junior underwriter, one of the Lloyd's um, syndicates. And her job, along with all the others, uh, as they kind of go through their kind of apprenticeship, so to speak, of being an underwriter, would be getting schedules of properties, of US, US properties, like hundreds or thousands of them. And the data comes from the broker in a state that's not very useful. And uh, data in the wrong fields, in the wrong you know, formats, all that kind of stuff. And they would spend a good chunk of their time just going through these and remedying, remedying them. And 
it's not just them doing it in that syndicate. All the other syndicates that are looking at this do exactly the same thing on exactly the same data before they can put it into modeling tools to really model and understand the risk. Is there a, what's the cat risk of this property? And um, it's just so inefficient. But then the example I'm thinking of, uh, she thought, well, this is rubbish. <laughs> There's, this, there should be a better way. And um, set up a company, a startup called Scrub AI to go and solve that problem. So, um, you know, there are these kind of problems and people, it is causing some of the more innovative and entrepreneurial people in the industry to try and solve them. There, there are industry-wide things that they're trying to do to solve this kind of stuff. There's things like the core data record that Lloyd's trying to put in. There's a core data standards. There's, um, there's the um, EMRC, um, uh, market reform contract. And there's all these things going on, but it's, it's really tough because there's a number of different players involved. Like the brokers are very influential. They're bringing the business in. They have the customer relationship. They've got their ways of doing things. There's the Lloyd's way of doing things. There's, um, it, it's trying to solve this, this problem for the kind of specialty insurance market is a huge thing to address. It's not really not easy. Um, I wouldn't want to be trying to do it. I've got to be honest. Um, but there is a lot in there and I can see why people would get frustrated and I can see why that could you know, put people off their jobs if a chunk of their work is actually just admin. And if Very I could toss admin. in... Um, you know, in a different way of thinking about data, a lot of the insurance interactions are the insurance carrier reaching out to the customer, to the agent, to the broker for information. Um, you know, it happens across the board. It's a lot of high volume critical outreaches. And for example, we had one customer for disability claims was trying to get just one piece of information from employees, which was the return to work date. And they were doing it by phone. And it was taking them up to six calls and up to three weeks to actually connect with the person. Lots of voicemail tag. They were about, I think, about 600, 700,000 calls a year were occurring to do this. Um, each call, say, cost saved me about 15 US dollars each. They pushed out an SMS message to the employee. 85% of the people opted in to engage in that conversation. 90% responded in an hour, 50% responded in five minutes. That one interaction saving that carrier from an OPEX and employee engagement, but from an OPEX perspective, millions of dollars and reducing the risk of overpayments, compliance on late payment issues, all those types of things by also thinking about the small. I mean, the data challenge, absolutely, you know, as I described, you know, it's, it's huge and there's the great opportunities, but there's also like, I feel like there's all this, this treasure of individual things that through that could get to getting better data faster, cheaper. Andrew, could I ask you a question which occurred to me listening to what Ed had to say about, about the Lloyd's market, where the data to put a price on, on the risk is submitted in a in a very um, user unfriendly format, a, a, an analog format, and, and all these different underwriters uh, very inefficiently key that into spreadsheets and, and do the same work on it. And you could argue that they need some standards and and so on. And, and this this startup you referred to may be looking to address this problem. But do, does the insurance industry as a whole? I mean, Lloyd's is ostensibly a market. You know, brokers bring risks into to underwriters. Underwriters write risk. It's meant to be a competitive marketplace. Yet it doesn't seem to work that efficiently. If um, what what Ed is saying is correct, do you see signs that the insurance industry is developing 
more efficient markets, if you like. And I'm talking about markets, not just where risks are traded, but perhaps where uh, information is traded as well. Would the industry benefit from that? And do you see that, those types of digital markets starting to develop or have they developed already? I think you know, it, it comes back to the question around data and then sharing of data, but you've obviously got things like the MIB, um, you've got the driver vehicle licensing um, centre in the UK, and then it's about, if you like, sharing some of that information with insurers at a cost that they can afford to help them, if you like, process quotes, process claims. There's, there's lots of different, I suppose, pieces of data that could be brought together to make the quote process a lot more simple. So the DBLA could sell its data on an online marketplace to somebody who is prepared to buy that segment of it. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, and no, I think, you know, whilst you can actually do that at the moment, you need a code. It's very difficult to get that code. You know, it, it almost you need the customer to give permission beforehand to be able to do it. And I think once you've achieved that, you know, you could almost give your name and postcode. And, and most of the information you would need to price insurance risk, certainly from a proxy perspective, is there. And then you're into basically iterating the premium based on how, when and where people drive using, you know, as I say, GPS data from a sort of a pattern AI perspective. So, you know, you can actually cut a lot of these things out of the process. It's just getting the, I suppose, the willingness, you know, particularly with government agencies and things like that, to actually do it. And if you like, subscribe to the modern era. And there are lots of countries around the world that already do these things. I think sadly in the UK, we are a little bit behind uh, in doing this but yeah we could take a lot of cost out and make lives a lot easier for a lot of people if we did integrate data but it comes back to that trust question and um, we've all heard the horror stories and i won't name names but you know people have done some pretty horrible things with data over the last few years and i think it's just building trust with customers that it's being used for good and not for bad and that they are appropriately compensated if something does go wrong and it's, it's used for some purpose that it should have been used for. Yeah, it's been used for some oh, benefit to what they is 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 valuable to them, if you like. And um, but you know, I think I think it, from my I can see is that data is the new oil. People say this all the time. That's where the value sits. So there is a reluctance, I feel, to going to hold on to that data and that insight and be very intelligent, rich. And you can see that in large organisations, really, like the NHS, for an example, where. There's 264 silos of information on a single person, very intelligent in their own right, but nobody has yet thought about bringing that together around the patient's experience, if you like. So even in their own organisations, there's bureaucracy around um, uh, and red tape, if you like, preventing um, you know, the co-creation of, of model, models and propositions and bringing data sets together for more intelligent and better outcomes and efficiency. So I think people are still holding on to it. And yes, you have then the governance around that, which absolutely you have to... Uh, manage and manage very well uh, but it comes back to that customer engagement if, if that's the driving force um, behind it then I think businesses will start bleeding uh, and dropping their boundaries if you like and uh, doing it for the greater good so to your point Dominic around will that shape markets I think only when only when um, um, you know industries large you know the data holders if you like starting uh, coming on that journey will we see that. I, I think there's also cross-carrier trust considerations too, because I was part of some of those conversations where being at a mega carrier, we were like, do we really want to help the, the up and comers capitalize on, you know, you know, a hundred plus years worth of insight? You know, you, you have to, you have to have that question about um, there's the broader good, but is that good for me? Do you see Meredith in the United States, markets starting to develop in, markets do exist in insurance risks, clearly, and they have done for some time. 
but they seem to operate relatively inefficiently and not in a particularly transparent way. Can you envisage a future in which there are transparent markets in, in risk, which can be actively traded during the day? Uh, maybe, they're, maybe they're markets in benefits from, from insurance policies as, as well, um, but also particularly, what we've just been talking about, a market in, in data. Is this something from which the industry could benefit if it develops securities market style, you know, continuously traded markets in data benefits and risks? Yeah, I believe so. And I we're seeing it. Um, I was talking with someone about this a few weeks ago of, you know, even in the past five years, the level of readiness to collaborate of, you know, I'm mega carrier X and I, you know, think I have the best of product ABC, but I could round myself out by adding product D. In the old days, I mega carry would scramble to stand that up because I needed to own and control it all. And you don't see that anymore. You see big carriers partnering with other big carriers, you know, kind of realizing you really can't be the, you can strive to be the best at everything, but it's not going to work. Um, and your reputation, lean on what your reputation says you're the most amazing and see if you can find the complementary entities out there that lead in those other areas where you don't, because then, then you win if you make that available to the customer. Like the customer really doesn't care, um, kind of the underwriting company sitting behind the scenes. They really don't. You know, they care about the experience. They might, oh, that's kind of interesting. Carrier X is selling me policy from Carrier Y. That's interesting. But as long as it's giving me what I need in the way that I want it for the price I'm willing to pay, I'm happy. And my carrier gets credit for all of that. So we're starting to see that, but it's happening more kind of from the back working forward. Mm -hmm. Now we're into our last few minutes. So I'd like to bring the, the discussion back to the question with which we began, how to make this insure tech uh, revolution actually happen. And Ed, maybe I could throw this question at you to start with. Do you consider the insurtechs you're looking at to, to be ambitious enough to be focusing on the right areas? Uh, do you think they see themselves as long-term disruptors of the industry, or do they see themselves as carving out niches which they can sell to an established company? Is there enough going on among the insurtechs themselves to be hopeful that they will eventually drive the changes which we've talked about here this afternoon? Yeah, I think I think there's loads of great things going on. I mean, you only need to look at the number of insurtech events that are going on and see the number of people turn up to see there's a lot going on in the space and um, a lot of them doing really well. I think um, I don't really see it as a... Um, as disrupting the industry in, in that sense i see it more of more of um you know niches that they're, they're all kind of a lot of them are coming up with the niches that they need to solve but it's such a big industry and there's so many problems to tackle that i think that's that, that's the right challenge that, that's the right way and ultimately there's a lot of you know you say are they looking to be bought out yeah i think a lot of them would like to be bought out by the big insurers or big brokers and um it's good to have that exit route because you know, if we look at, I mean, you said as an example of success, Lemonade earlier on, um, I think some may debate that. Um, obviously, they've done well to be the size they are, but they've not had, you know, the success perhaps that everyone was expecting a few years ago. But um, you look at the ones that have gone public, it's, it seems like that's kind of not really a priority. And actually, like, a lot of them are perhaps going to be acquired by other big insurers who have 
massive balance sheets. Um, but so there's a route for them to go out. But I think they're doing the right kind of thing. I think um, it's all be, always be good to have more insurers that have innovative, open-minded people within them to, you know, experiment with new products to um, to make it easier for the insurtechs to get on. You know, one of the barriers to ensure that's getting on, I mentioned earlier, was language, massive barrier, I think. But another one is like, you know, as a startup, trying to bring an innovative te technology into a big insurer to streamline their processes or get better at something. Like, there are like a few people, in, you know, who've got a great technology solution. And then you throw all this compliance, um, all this like, you know, 500 question IT document, um, require them to have a modern slavery um policy and all these other policies it's like well it's like three people you know they're like and then they spend literally like you know a whole person from their three people will spend two or three weeks just trying to do all the forms and it's like crippling for some of them it's also the slow no we need to get rid of the slow no like people a bit dragged along dragged along dragged along like impact like leaders empower your people to make decisions and do stuff like you know let them experiment and fail if they need to experiment and learn ideally um, but yeah, there, there's, there's, there's things that we can improve, and make it better, but I think InsurTechs are doing a great job. Otherwise I wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have, uh, joined Innovative Risk Labs to try and help them. Craig, uh, listening to, to Ed there, the old, the hackneyed old phrase insurance is, is sold, not bought. Sounds completely mis you know, inappropriate here since insurance companies, from what Ed's just been describing, are very bad at, at, at selling what they do. They make the process very difficult. Um, indeed, do you do you see from where you sit that actually the industry is starting to understand? And I think from everything that's, I've heard this afternoon, I think it is that they're starting with the customer now, rather than finishing with the customer, if you like. Yeah, definitely starting to understand. And and there's pockets of tactical initiatives, you know, to what Ed was describing there, that quite niche um, uh, tactical engagements going on where. Um, that can be proven. I completely agree with the bureaucracy and the slowness of, of adopting that technology. It's a, it's a major frustration, um, uh, really. So, you know, unless you can go through that kind of trusted partner route, it's really kind of tough to do that. So I think the industry is understanding. I think there's lots of R&D going on in, in elsewhere, you know, in terms of the not being able to miss out or to, you know, mostly in consulting firms, it's just to make sure that um, they're telling them, if you like, where they need to be in the X, X year state and, spending millions of pounds to, to come back to that understanding that you, yeah, you know, that's kind of where we need to be and where we need to go. Um, but I think um, it's not quick enough. I think it's, um, it is a threat to the industry, but you can empathize with the pain. You can see um, the legacy challenges that they have. You can see how that's a noose around their neck. You can see um, there's other priorities that they need to do. So last conversation I had, I won't name the name of the customer was, yep, we've got a four year transformation program. Nothing's coming in until we solve that. Right. Okay. Then you're going to get to that point and everything's going to change. So to your point, to Ed's point, how can you start uh, building a, a culture of innovation really in your organization to trial these things? Um, how can we start to use clever technology like RPA potentially to act like an API between legacy systems and you know, to bridge that gap? It's not technically beautiful. Your architects will destroy me for saying that, but um, you know it can provide the business with a, a mechanism to, to MVP and to try things out. Um, and fail fast and to learn from that to then define the spec and, and and rewrite that agenda so but they understand it not there yet long way to go in my opinion thanks craig uh, meredith can i read a quotation to you from marshmallow one of the insure texts which i looked at 
And they said, we realized the big insurers had lost sight of what they were here to do to protect people when the worst happened. In other words, they took the view that the industry was operating from the, from the wrong principles at the outset. A lot of what you've said this afternoon, I think, I don't misrepresent you when I say you would probably agree with that, would you? I wouldn't agree that they've lost sight of the principles. I think they have lost sight of how to communicate that they get it. Um, there's nothing like, you know, when a disaster happens and watching, you know, a 50,000 person organization rally, they get it. Um, you don't work in this industry for the long haul um, if, you, if you don't get it, because it, it's hard. It's hard work. Um, you know, and you're, you're altering people's lives, hopefully in the best way possible. Um, but I think they have lost sight of staying connected to the customer for the customer to realize they get it. Um, that, that, that's my take. Mm -hmm. Andrew, a, a last word from you. We're, we're in an industry now where we see insurtechs paying claims without question, simply because that's actually cheaper than to investigate the thing in the first place. And, and obviously, to borrow a phrase I'm banned from using, delights the customer. Do you... Do you, do you see an industry here which is undergoing a fundamental transformation, not just a digital one, but actually a cultural transformation that it's about to completely revolutionize the way it does business? I think, I think they're starting to understand, um, you know, let's, let's, let's use that phrase, customer delight, a little bit better, I guess, than they ever have. And, you know, there's a lot of big carriers out there, Aviva, NFU, certainly in the UK, that, that obviously make a thing about the fact that they pay 90% of claims um, and, you know, repudiate very few. And I think the issue with that is it, it probably gives customers encouragement to go towards them if they are potentially a little bit fraudulent because they can potentially get something through that they wouldn't get through elsewhere. But I think, the, you know, the, the message is a great one and it is all about honesty. And I think as long as they're using technology behind the scenes to make sure that they aren't being exposed and that, if you like, that great statement doesn't ultimately fall over and, and cost them a lot of money. Um, I think it's definitely the way to go. I, I would encourage CEOs of, of large insurance companies to, to look up, to look around at the insure tech world, to see what's out there, because I think a lot of the problems that they're wrestling with internally, frankly, with large transformation programs that last four years, they don't look around and see what's there um, because there are some, some very simple, very easily sort of introduced solutions that could save them um, a lot of that combined operating ratio very quickly. Thank you, Andrew. Look up, look around. The, the solutions are out there. Uh, you don't have to invent them yourself. That's a very good note to end on. And I think we must stop there. I'd like to thank our panellists, Meredith Barnes-Cook from Usher, uh, Andrew Bennett from Greater Than, Ed Gaze from IRL, and Craig John from Davies Group. Thank you also to you, our audience, for joining our discussion. Here at Future of Finance, our next event is now only five days away. Uh, and in a giant step towards a return to normality after the various lockdowns, it will be our first physical event since March 2020. Entitled Embrace the Digital Future or Die, we will be exploring with the asset management industry how they can transform their costs by embracing a whole new way of investing and servicing investments. It starts at 4pm London time at the Woolbrook Club in the City of London on Tuesday 20th September. Do join us if you can.